As those offering baskets are being passed, the two want to welcome you to Four Oaks. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Scott, one of the members of the pastoral team. Our, our lead pastor, Paul, he is away. Uh, and so it's my privilege to be able to open up God's word to you and for you. Uh, but before we, we jump in to God's word, uh, I just want to um, tell you that it's been, a, it's been a really sweet summer. And if you are a guest with us, uh, you come at a great time. We took a break from our study of the book of Genesis And this summer, we've looked at seven letters from Jesus to seven local churches throughout Asia Minor. And then next Sunday, we're actually jumping back into the book of Genesis. And so you've already guessed with us. We're glad that you're here, coming a great time. Uh, And I was thinking about uh, the the letters that we've been reading and just the letter writing that happened um, over the summer that we've been looking at. And it got me thinking about a couple of summers for my wife and I. When we were, our last year of FSU, we dated that school year, and there were, our relationship was bookended by two summers uh, of letter writing. So I know this is hard to believe. It's a while ago now. But uh, when we were dating, um, you, you, didn't have, you didn't have all the other texting and stuff like that. You just had letters. And so uh, the first summer, I worked with some inner city kids, and then also in Nigeria, and Julia was doing a beach project with crew. And then the next summer, Julia was in three months in Israel, and I was getting my first job working for the state right here in Tallahassee. And so those two summers, while we were away from one another, we still had the opportunity to talk to one another once a week on the phone. It was like 30 bucks for 30 minutes. That was pretty insane. And uh, then we would write these letters, and we just looked forward to both writing them and receiving them. And uh, Julia was so sweet for a Valentine's gift— Got it right here. Uh, this is, what is it? Was it 2007, Valentine's Day, 2007. She actually preserved our letters throughout this uh, beautiful journal. Isn't that sweet? I kind of forgot about it until recently when, I know it sounds pretty bad, yeah. So I did, I totally forgot about it. And then uh, our daughter Hannah sort of picked it up and she started thrum- thumbing through it. And she's like, oh, this is so sweet. Look at these love letters. Isn't that great? And uh, in some ways, I would say that that's what our experience has been like this summer as we've been looking at love letters from Jesus, the bridegroom, to his local churches. I'm going to show you a quick slide up here, just kind of give you an idea. So if you remember, we've been walking through Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and Jesus has written seven letters to seven local churches. And we started with Ephesus, and then we moved all the way around. Uh, And last but not least, we're doing Laodicea today. And uh, if you remember when we launched out in this series at the beginning, I said that uh, a lot of times our temptation is to focus on everything below the clouds, you know, our daily lives, and not, and not to remember that Jesus is reigning over the clouds. He's reigning over us, just as the song that we just sang, and that he's working through us and in us and for us below the clouds too. But a lot of times when we're below the clouds and we kind of lose our gaze for who Jesus is and what he's doing, then we kind of have a temptation to be a lot of, like a lot of the different churches. Uh, so Ephesus, their tendency was to put up their dukes, and they were just fighting out sort of spiritual battles against those people around them. But as a result, they lost their first love. They stopped loving Jesus, and they stopped loving those around them. Other churches like Smyrna, um, they, they kind of were getting tempted to, to grow weary and lose heart. They were discouraged by all of the strife and the trouble that was around them. And so other churches were tempted to give in to sexual immorality and other idols of the city in which they lived. And then we come to a letter like today. And of all of the letters, I feel like this is the one that's hit me the most. 
Uh, really, every letter that we've read, it's almost been reading us as well. I can kind of put my, my heart into these letters and receive the words from Jesus and kind of put myself into that same sort of place that the churches are in. But of all of the letters, the one to Laodicea today is the one that I've been most convicted about, the one where my heart has most been broken over my sin, and also at the same time invited into a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. And so that's my hope and my prayer for you as well. Uh, With all of these letters, um, a lot of times the characteristics of the city connect with the characteristics of the church. And Laodicea is no different than that. And so before we jump into the letter, let me just kind of give you a quick backdrop on the city of Laodicea. So it was at uh, the time of the writing of this letter, which is in the early 90s, Laodicea was a city of about 120,000 people. Uh, it was at the, the crossroads of three different highways, and it became known as a city of commerce and affluence and industrialization. It uh, uh, was particularly t- to pride in their self-sufficiency. And to kind of give you an idea of why that is, if you go back in time 65 years to AD 26, Um, Laodicea competed with 10 other cities for the purpose of building a temple to honor Tiberius, who was the emperor at the time. But they weren't chosen. In fact, Smyrna, one of the other churches that we looked at earlier, was chosen instead. And the reason that Rome gave for why Laodicea was not chosen to build this temple was that they lacked sufficient resources. So when they heard that, it stung them to the core. And they said, we are never going to hear those words again. So fast forward to AD 60, there was an earthquake that, uh, that, that really covered all of Phrygia, which was the region that Laodicea was in. And it destroyed a lot of the infrastructure of the city. Rome came for help. They came to give help. They offered government resources to Laodicea. But Laodicea said, no, we want no help. We can do this on our own. And so they kind of pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps. They took the resources and the ingenuity of the city, and they did rebuild the city on their own. And then as a result of that, they grew in stature and power and popularity. And they were known for a number of different things. And I just want to highlight to you four of them really quickly. One, they were known for their wealth. They became a banking city. They, were, they had a trade exchange. They minted their own coins. People were buying and selling all of the time as, this, as these three different intersections of highways were coming into that city. And so they became known for their wealth and for their prosperity. They also were known for their fashion. Uh, so they raised these, um, these sheep that had black wool. And they were unique to that region. And uh, they would take this wool and they would you know, basically take it off, and, uh, and they would turn them into coats. And so people from all over Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey now, would come to Laodicea to buy these coats. It became this fashion epicenter of Asia Minor. They also were known for their medicine. They had a school of medicine in Laodicea that was particularly known for caring for people's eyes. And so uh, they had this um, uh, called Phrygian rock, which was from that part of, the, part of the world. And they would take this rock and they would ground it into powder and they would make it into different types of eye salve to heal eye ailments in particular. And so, uh, in fact, there was this even, there was an eye doctor named Demosthenes and he wrote a book on how to treat eyesight that was used all the way into the Middle Ages. And so people would come from all over to be able to receive care for their eyes if they were blind or any sort of other eye ailments they had. And last but not least, 
They were known for their ingenuity related to aqueducts, to pipe in water into the city. You see, they weren't on a, a good water source. And so about six miles to the north was a, was a town called Hierapolis. Uh, and they were known for their, their hot waters, their hot springs that would spring up. And a lot of people would use them for spa treatment and for healing uh, of whatever wounds they might have. And so um, they, Laodicea put in these aqueducts to bring in this water into the city. And then about uh, six miles to the east, I think that's right. Anyway, some, some to the east, there was this other city called Colossae. And right next to Colossae in Mount was Mount Cadmus. It was this huge mountain that was snow-capped for 11 months out of the year. And the water from the snow would come down and provide these cool springs to Colossae. And so Laodicea built these aqueducts to bring that water in to the city as well to serve the people. And so, they, man, they were super excited about their creativity, their ingenuity, their perseverance in solving their water problem. They took great pride in that. And so you can imagine uh, a city like this would be an amazing place for a church to reside. And so the church was planted there around the same time as the Colossian church. And, uh, and this church was able to take resources and serve people. It was a trade city. And so people were coming, o- coming from all over the world, literally. And they could hear the gospel there. There was this pioneering sort of spirit that was there as well. And so the church could, could take all of that for good. But what if the church began to take on the attitudes of the city in which it lived? And instead of just a sense of independence and ingenuity, they turned it into an attitude of self-reliance and self-sufficiency and basically said, Jesus, we're good. We got it. We're fine. What if God's people began to take the resources of that city that were intended to bless those around them and instead began to turn them inward for their own comfort, for their own sufficiency? What would Jesus say to a church like that? What would Jesus say to a bride who says, I'm good. I don't need you anymore. Well, that is an introduction. We're going to read this morning from Revelation chapter 3. And if you guys would stand with me. I want us to hear these words, this last letter from Jesus, the bridegroom, to his bride, the church in Laodicea. And as we hear these words to the church of Laodicea, I also pray that we would hear these words to our own souls as well. So starting in verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God write the truths of his word upon our souls this morning. You guys may take your seat. And as you do, uh, today's sermon is entitled, Buy From Me. It's found in verse 18. We'll get to that in a little bit. But we're just going to walk through this letter really step by step. Um, and, uh, and just like all of the other letters, Jesus starts with an introduction, a salutation, a greeting to the church. He wants to communicate who he is for this particular church. And so Jesus starts out in verse 14. He says, the words of the amen, which is simply the transliteration of a Hebrew word, amen, which means true, firm, reliable, trustworthy, faithful. In Isaiah 65, 16, God says, I am the God of the amen or the God of truth. And to go along with his title, Amen, he says, I'm the faithful and true witness. In other words, Jesus says, what I'm about to tell you, it is true. It is reliable. It is trustworthy. And because I am a faithful and true witness, I see everything. I don't only see the outward things about you. I see the thoughts and intentions of your heart. And so the words that I'm about to tell you are really going to be hard, but they are reliable. They are trustworthy. I see you better than you see yourself. And I promise you that if you receive these words, they will be life-giving. They will be freeing for your soul. So listen up, Church of Laodicea. He goes on and he says, I am the beginning of God's creation. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses can take that and they'll say, oh yeah, see, that's evidence. Jesus was the first one that was created. It's not the the meaning of that word. Arche literally means origin or source. In other words, Jesus says, I am the source of all life. Physical life, spiritual life. I am the one who provides it all to you. Oh, person, oh, church, who thinks that you're good on your own. This is what uh, the Apostle Paul says to the church at Colossae, just a few miles down the road. And I'm sure Laodicea probably read this letter to the Colossians. So Jesus wants to remind them of who he is. All of these hymns and he's, this refers to Jesus. Colossians chapter 1. For by him, or by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is starting out to say, Laodicea, I want you to hear this. I uphold the universe by the word of my power. I've got everything in the palm of my hands. I am the source of all life. I am the beginning and the end. Everything flows through me and to you. You have nothing that I have not given to you. I am the God of sovereign sufficiency. So Jesus starts out with these words as an introduction to his church. And he's about to move into some really hard words. 
to that church of Laodicea. But before he begins with, with these hard words, I just want to remind you that this is from a groom to his bride. So the, while these are hard words, these are loving words and gracious words to his church. It's going to punch us in the gut this morning. But I pray also at the same time that it would open up our hearts to see that Jesus is inviting us into a deeper relationship with him. A love relationship with our bridegroom. So what are these words? Well, unlike a lot of the other churches that Jesus wrote to, he has no positive things to say to Laodicea. He moves right into a rebuke, a correction. Verse 15. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And those are probably common words. You might be familiar with them. Um, but they're also a lot of times misunderstood. And so let me explain to you a little bit more. I mentioned earlier how the aqueducts would bring in water from the hot water from Hierapolis and the cool water from Colossae into Laodicea. The problem was that by the time those hot waters and the cool waters arrived in Laodicea, they were lukewarm. In addition, there was limestone and lime uh, deposits that began to build up in the aqueducts. And because of all those black sheep that were running around, there was lots of sheep dung that got into the water source as well. And so not only was this water lukewarm, but it was contaminated and it made people sick to drink it. So Jesus uses an illustration for the church. He says, guys, you have lukewarm waters in your soul. Laodicea, when they had these lukewarm waters, instead of trying to ask for help, they tried to respond with ingenuity and more creativity to deal with the problem on their own. And in the same way, the church has begun to do the same thing. Jesus says, I wish that you would receive cool, refreshing water from me to bring life to your soul. I wish that you received hot water from me that brings comfort and healing to your soul. But instead, you've got just these sick, contaminated waters that you're drinking and that you're going to. I wish that when you receive the life-giving water from me, that it would then spill out into deeds and service to those around you. I wish that when you receive the comforting water from the gospel, that it would then be poured out into comfort and healing to those around you. But instead, your relationship with me is tepid. It's lukewarm. And your deeds that are flowing out of you are good for nothing. They're not serving anyone. I want to spit you out of my mouth. Word for spit, emeo, also can mean vomit. These are hard words from Jesus to his church at Laodicea. And you guys know what this is like, right? Man, when you're, when you're working outside and you're all hot and sweaty, you want nothing but a cool glass of water to, 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 to freshen you up. Or when you're working really hard, hard outside or inside or whatever, and just to sit underneath a, a nice hot shower, 
those physical experiences, Jesus also desires to pour them out spiritually upon his people and upon that city. I say, no, we're good. We're fine. Now, how did they get to that place? We'll read verse 17a, the beginning. It says, for you say, church, you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. I'm good. I'm fine. That is the voice of self-sufficiency. I need no one's help. That's the voice of the city to Rome 65 years earlier. And now that has become the church's mantra in the early 90s. Jesus, I used to be I mean, yeah, I used to depend on you. I used to be fine, but, but I'm good now. We're mature enough. We're strong enough. We've got good enough programs on our own. We've got enough resources on our own. We've got medicine. We can help people. We can heal sick people because we've got our good stuff. We're fine. We don't need you, Jesus. They had symbolically put up a deadbolt on their door. Jesus, we're fine. We're good. Now, I'm sure that didn't happen all at once. It was a slow progression, more and more, saying, Jesus, I'm good. I'm fine. I can do it on my own. You guys convicted yet? (laughs) Me too. That sounds really good to be independent, to provide for yourself. I remember when Hannah was uh, really small. She was a little little baby, and uh, and her first words were, I do. (laughs) So we're like, all right, yeah, that's good. But over time, right, that sense of independence and self-reliance ends up taking us away from who is the one who truly provides everything for us to enjoy. And so Jesus uses these five words to describe them. He says, for you say I'm rich, I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. It's like, all these punches in the gut to describe their spiritual life. He says, you're wretched. You think you've got it all under control. You think that whatever problems you have can be, can be solved on your own. The reality is, though, that you are wretched. You're troubled. You're under the weight of your sin and under affliction. This word is only used one other time in the New Testament, in, excuse me, in Romans chapter 7, where the apostle Paul, he's listed out all of these things that he's done wrong. He's like, man, I do the things that I don't want to do, and the things that I don't want to do, I do do. And he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? That is the state of the church of Laodicea. He also says, you are pitiable. In the Greek, it means without mercy. They say, I don't need any help. I've got my job. I've got my money. I've got my affluence. I'm fine. But Jesus says, that won't, that won't get anywhere with me. You need my mercy. You're actually more of a blind beggar on the road than someone who's good. That flows right into the next one of being poor bankrupt in your soul. Those things that you're looking to for sufficiency, they're creating relational distance with me. And as a result, your soul is is impoverished. 
You got people coming from all over the world to get treatment for your eyes, but you don't realize that you are spiritually blind. You can't see me. You can't see my glory. You can't see my kingdom because you're so self-absorbed in in what's going on around you. You can't see how much in need you really are. Last but not least, everyone looks to your clothes, look to your fashion, look to your external appearance and say, yeah, I want that. But in reality, you're naked. You're, you're sewing little fig leaves to cover your shame. I've offered so much more to you, church. I want to make a quick note here. Jesus is not critiquing the wealth, medicine, the clothing, ingenuity, but it's their improper use of it and how they're turning to those things for self-sufficiency rather than trusting in God and looking to the sufficiency that comes through Christ alone. I'm sure these were painful words for Laodicea. Remember, they never wanted to hear these words again. You are poor. You don't, you lack resources to be exposed, to be told once again, you fall short. And I'm not sure about for you, but as I've been meditating on this passage the last couple of weeks, man, God's hit me pretty hard about my tendency towards self-sufficiency and self-reliance. I'm not sure if you're familiar with a, a phrase, Paul Tripp uses it, gospel amnesiac. It's where you, you know the gospel, you know it's true, you know that you are a child of God, you know that Jesus died for your sins, but you kind of go through the day and then all of a sudden you get to the end of the day and you're like, oh wait, I totally forgot, forgot to ask God for help. I sort of just depended on my own strength, on my own wisdom, on my own talents. I forgot. I forgot that I'm a child of God. What about you? Where in your life are you saying, I need nothing? I'm good, God. I'm fine. I don't need your help. Or maybe it's more subtle than that. Maybe it's not that you're necessarily running away from Christ and dead bolting the door, but your relationship with him is just lukewarm. You're content with the status quo. You're like uh, what we call in re-engage, an undivorced married couple. Yeah, you're united with Jesus. You're married to him, but you're really acting as an undivorced married couple where you're on parallel tracks, but not intersecting with him. Well, here are some diagnostic questions I want to ask you and me as I've been jotting some notes down on my own heart. I just want to ask you these things because this is where it really hits me. These are some questions that get you thinking about your heart. When life gets hard, do you first turn to trust in Jesus for help? Or do you tend to rely upon yourself and your own resources? And he's sort of that last resort that you go to when you can't figure it out on your own. What about when you wake up in the morning? Where does your heart and your imagination go? Do you immediately pick up the phone and look at email? Me? Uh, do, you, do you immediately jump into um, your work responsibilities or Facebook or Instagram and catching up with those things around you? Or do you first look at Jesus and think about his kingdom and his righteousness? What about when you get home at night? When you are overwhelmed, when you are tired, do you bring your heart to the Lord? Or do you tend to kind of numb out 
Netflix, email, work, food, or anything else just to calm those fears and that anxiety. Just kind of put that out. I just don't want to think about it right now. Or maybe you have a heart to serve those around you. But in that place of ministry at home or on the job or at school, do you depend on yourself, your own experiences, your own talents, or do you confess right from the start, I got nothing to offer you except Jesus? One last question for you. This is the big overarching one. How would you assess the spiritual temperature of your soul right now? Is Jesus welcome in your life? Is your time in prayer and in the word a necessity? I've got to go to you, Jesus. Or is it just sort of a nicety or something that's sort of extraneous to your life? Is your time here on Sunday morning, is it coming saying, I got nothing except for you, Jesus. I desperately need you. I've got to be at church every Sunday morning. I've got to hear from your word. I've got to be with God's people. Or eh, if I have time, I'll maybe go to church every once in a while. Any of these questions expose your heart like they have mine? Convicted your heart like they have mine? Challenged your heart like they have mine? I want to encourage you. You are in the right place. In fact, the first step to change is to first see yourself in need of change. To see that you are actually desperately in need of God's grace and his mercy. And with our hearts exposed like that, now Jesus wants to speak to our hearts. Verse 18. I counsel you. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Jesus counsels his church. He speaks words of life to his church. And what are these words of life? He says, come buy from me. The first thing that he offers to them is gold refined by fire. That can probably call to mind a number of different things. In fact, commentators are not exactly sure what this means. It could mean a stronger faith, which is more precious than gold, uh, that the Apostle Peter talks about. It could be spiritual riches and an inheritance that, that far outweighs everything else that this life has to offer. It could be a purer church. All of those things are true, but I think of all of those things, the The most important wealth, the most important gold refined by fire is what Alexander McLaren says. There may be many different ways of putting the thought that is conveyed here, but I think the deepest truth of human nature is that the only wealth for a man is the possession of God. That wealth has immunity from all accidents. No possession is truly mine of which any outward contingency or circumstance can deprive me. That which moth or rust can corrupt, that which thieves can break through and steal, that which is the mercy of the accidents of a commercial community or the fluctuations of trade, that is no wealth for a man. But this wealth, the wealth of a heart enriched with the possession of God, whom it knows, loves, trusts, and obeys, only this is true wealth for me. Jesus says, buy from me, 
gold refined by fire. In fact, I am that gold. Be like the man who's out in the field and he finds this treasure in the field and he says, I'm going to give everything else up for the sake of having this treasure, Jesus Christ. And then out of that treasure of Jesus flow these beautiful, wonderful gifts that are obviously, you can harken back to the city and what they thought they, they had that they really didn't have. They say, hey, you know, you got, you, got, you got fashionable clothing. Let me tell you about true clothing. Robes of righteousness to cover over all of your shame and your nakedness. Talk about wonderful salve to anoint your eyes. Let me give you spiritual sight to see me in all of my glory. That's a true gift for you. And then out of a relationship with me, you get all of this amazing riches of an inheritance with me forever and ever and ever. But the question, I'm sure if, if you're like me, what? Jesus says, come buy from me. How do we buy from Jesus if he just told us that we're bankrupt, that we've got no clothes, and that we're blind and we can't see? How do we buy from Jesus? I want to turn over to Isaiah 55. This is a wonderful passage that goes right along with the scripture. And I wouldn't be surprised if Jesus even had it in mind as he was speaking it to the church of Laodicea. Verse 1. Come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear. Come to me. Hear that your soul may live. In other words, the buying that is required of us is simply to exchange those things that we've been going to for Jesus. It's an exchange of self-sufficiency and self-reliance and our own resources for the true treasure, the true bread, the true life, the true waters. And it all comes through grace. We don't have to do anything. We just give it up and we run to Christ. It's like the younger son, right, who's eating pig slop and he's not satisfied and he kind of comes to his senses and he runs back home and receives all of these good gifts from his father. Or it's like the elder brother who's been running to self-righteous deeds and as a result, created this gap between him and his father. And the father says, all that I have is yours. Just come back to me. What does this exchange really look like? Well, Jesus explains it. Verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And you might have heard those words used for unbelievers, and I think it can be applied that way. But more than anything else, this is applied to believers. As believers, we have been united with Christ, but our communion with Christ over time can can move away. We can begin to move far away from Christ. And Jesus says, it's like you've deadbolted the door. 
You've locked the door on me. You're relying upon yourself, your own resources, your own sufficiency. And all you need to do is open the door again. I just want to have dinner with you. I just want to spend time with you. I just want to enjoy your presence, and I want you to enjoy my presence. Commune with me. Eat with me. Be satisfied with me. Find your comfort in me. Rest in me. Rely, drink deeply from me. Charles Spurgeon, he says, you will never know the fullness of Christ until you know the emptiness of everything else but Christ. So whatever things that you've been running to, and they don't satisfy you, Jesus says, I offer you bread that does satisfy, the living bread that you don't have to pay for. You just come, open the door of your heart, and enjoy me. I want to encourage you with this too. This is not just a personal repentance or a personal invitation. This is also a corporate repentance and a corporate invitation because the church of Laodicea over time, instead of encouraging one another towards Christ, they started just saying, oh, we're good. We got our programs. We don't need prayer. We got our resources. We don't need to depend upon the Lord. And so as a corporate body, we are invited together to say, Jesus, I need you. I can't do life without you. Holy Spirit, I need your power. Father, I need to receive the love from you rather than looking to the love from all those other things. If this is you, Jesus is an invitation to you and to me. What does he say in verse 19? He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. It's really two things that Jesus says in verse 19. He says, I want you first to receive the reproof. It's from a loving God. I don't know what that reproof might be in your life. It might be certain things that you've been running to that don't satisfy. It might be you're coming to the end of yourself and realizing that that's not enough and that you need Christ. It might be that the the hand of the Lord is heavy upon you right now because you keep on running away from him. Jesus says, I want you to receive this as a loving reproof. This is coming from a husband who wants his bride to come back home. And so receive that reproof, receive that rebuke as a loving gift to you. And then second, he says, be zealous and repent. Exchange your self-sufficiency for the sufficiency of Christ. Exchange those temporary pleasures for the eternal pleasures that are found in Christ. I want to add one other little thing here. Our tendency as soon as we walk out of this building, it's immediately right to go back to the to-do list, right to go back to those other responsibilities that we have. I want to really ask that when you leave this place that you first run to Christ before you do anything else. Spend time in his word, spend time in his prayer. Bring your heart before him. If your heart is being exposed this morning, bring that heart to him and say, Jesus, I need you.
And when we do that, this is the promise that's available to us. Verse 21. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Jesus knew what it was like to give up fleeting pleasures, temporary wealth, for the purpose of finding a sufficiency in his Father and in the Spirit. And as a result of humbling himself even to the point of death on a cross, he was then highly exalted, and now he is ruling and reigning with his Father over all. And Jesus invites us into that same pathway to die to self, to die to those temporary things in order to find true wealth in Jesus Christ. And those who run to Christ will reign with Christ forever. It's a beautiful invitation for us. It's a way for us to see above the clouds. As I mentioned earlier, our tendency is just to focus on the reality, the right here and now. And Jesus says, I want to invite you to a much greater reality. And so that reality is in chapter 4 and 5 of Revelation. We're not going to go to it today. But just to suffice it to say, it's a throne room. It's the Father and the Son and the Spirit reigning on high. It's the angelic creatures worshiping God. It is the people from every tongue, tribe, and nation finding their satisfaction in God himself and saying, worthy is the lamb to be slain. He is worthy to receive all power and glory and wisdom and might and blessing forever and ever. He is worthy of my praise and he's worthy of my satisfaction. Four Oaks, buy from Jesus this morning. Give up your self-reliance, your self-sufficiency, your self-indulgence, and drink from the spring of living waters that never run dry. Put on his garments of righteousness that truly cover your shame and your sin. Receive spiritual sight to see him and behold his glory. And enjoy the riches of communing with Christ and enjoying him and reigning with him forever and ever and ever. Amen. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray.